0: And welcome to the fourth program in our series, Oops! I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. In our previous three sessions, we saw that the first three letters of Calvin's TULIP tumbled when compared to the Scripture's teaching on these three doctrines. Now, you may recall that each letter of TULIP stands for a major doctrine of Calvinism. T for total human depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. Recall also that Calvinists consider these points to be the undergirding foundation for their understanding of theology and of God. Remember how in our first session I likened one's belief system to a suit? (laughs) As a young man, I called Calvin's system my suit of theology. At that time, I believed there were only two brands of suits to choose from, Calvinism or Arminianism. Because I believe the Bible clearly teaches that a genuine believer is eternally secure and cannot lose his or her salvation, now I base that on Jude 3.8, 1 Corinthians 3.15, and Romans 3.38. Because of that, I rejected Arminianism and concluded that I must be a Calvinist. But when I tried on the Calvinist suit, I found it didn't quite fit me, for it did not agree with what I believed to be the true to, about God's person and about his attributes. I assumed the problem was with me, and I simply needed to examine Calvin's five points more carefully in light of the Bible. After seriously considering and comparing Calvin's view with the scriptures, I came to the conclusion that I could not agree with his definitions for all five points of TULIP. Now during this CMI TV series, it's my hope that you are gaining a better understanding of biblical definitions for these five doctrines. As you have seen, once one of the letters of TULIP fall... Like dominoes, each successive letter falls. Rather than just topple them, our series replaces them with a scriptural definition of God's doctrines. And, for a lack of a better name, we call our system Biblicism. Join me now in our fourth session of our series, where I consider the eye of Tulip, Calvin's irresistible grace, and see if it, too, must tumble. Unlike the previous three points of Calvin's tulip, I had no real thoughts about the eye of irresistible grace of tulip when I began my study of it. So I turned to the Westminster Confession, the prime doctrine a document defining Calvinism's irresistible grace. Here's what I read. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. Call them out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. (laughs) End quote. Now please note that last line very carefully. So as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. How can a person come most freely and at the same time be made willing by God? Such a statement is a dichotomy of two contrasting ideas that are total opposites. Like all Calvinist doctrines, these two ideas are not seen as conflicting to the Calvinist. You see, because all ideas, consistent or not, must support the centrality of the doctrine of the elect, the chosen of God. Therefore, a Calvinist sees no such dichotomy. For since God loves the elect and only the elect, then they must be freely created To want God. Well-known spokesman for New Calvinism, John Piper, states, and I quote, Irresistible grace is the commitment and the power of God's love, end quote. But in reality, as Dave Hunt observed, one can be persuaded or convinced, but not made willing, because the will must be willing in and of itself. I also ask, what about the non-elect? Have they no voice in the matter? Are they merely pawns on God's stage? Again, quoting the well-known book on the subject, what love is this? You see, the forcing of God's love upon an individual is often clouded over by the key term of irresistible grace. That is the phrase, the effectual call of God. Calvinist David Steele and Curtis Thomas defined the effectual call as, and I quote, the special inward call of the Spirit that never fails to result in the conversion of those to whom it is made. This special call is not made to all sinners, but is issued to the elect only. End quote. Now, I just assumed that the effectual call, or the irresistible grace, was the natural outcome of God's sovereignty over his wills of men. I reasoned that since he elected to save some individuals, irresistible grace was the only means of accomplishing his sovereign will. For, if you will, it serves as an automatic mechanism in the election process prior to reconsidering my position as a Calvinist, I would have been in agreement with John Piper when he said, and I quote, If our doctrine of total depravity is true, there can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. If we are dead in our sins, totally unable to submit to God, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. End quote. Since Calvin's doctrine of total depravity portrays man as being, in Piper's words, in total rebellion to God, and this rebellion can only be overcome by irresistible faith through God's grace, notice that he acknowledges that God must overcome our rebellion and does that forcibly. Now, this is hardly supporting the words, come most freely, That we read in the Westminster Confession. Underlying the doctrine of irresistible grace is the Calvinist concept that it is impossible for God to be truly sovereign if he allows his will to be resisted in any place, any way, anyone. From a Calvinist viewpoint, God's sovereignty is absolute, for it controls every motion or act of every individual. You see, to them, God determines and controls every movement in our lives. As I noted in our previous session, this makes us either fatalists or robots, neither of which would I like to be. And further, and more importantly, such a view of God and His sovereignty seems to me contrary to the picture of man that our Bible presents not only contrary to man, but contrary to the very nature of the God of the Bible. After reconsidering and rejecting the first three points of Calvinism, however, I realized that I no longer could accept the Calvinist teaching of irresistible grace also. I had two reasons for rejecting it. Firstly, Calvin only created this doctrine because it was essential to supporting his concept of total depravity of man and election. Now you may wish to watch our first program on total depravity to better understand the why this is true, why everything is built on total depravity. In fact, everything not only is built on total depravity, but if you will, it supports total depravity. So, therefore, they are all interdependent. Now, secondly, Calvin defined God's exercise of his sovereign will differently from the way the Bible defines God's sovereignty and his will. And as I read the illustrations of God's sovereignty in the Bible, I see that that totally goes against what Calvinism teaches. Now, I've already discussed how Calvin's view of man's depravity forced him to develop TULIP in my first program. So I'm now going to consider what is God's sovereign will with respect to humanity and its relation to a person's salvation based upon the Bible. The key to understanding why Calvin's irresistible grace is not biblical lies in an understanding of God's sovereignty with respect to humanity and its salvation. I have never questioned the fact that God is sovereign over his creation. For you see, God's sovereignty is an essential part of his person and his character. The real issue concerning sovereignty is how God exercises his sovereignty and his power. The how is the issue, not whether he is sovereign. The foundational idea of sovereignty is that God, as the only non-created being, is under no external restraint whatsoever. Get that? The foundational idea of sovereignty is that God is the only non-created being and as such is under no external restraint whatsoever. That means that he is uniquely free in that his actions are determined solely by his own nature and pleasure and not by anything outside of himself. Now this is clearly taught in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. In Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 We read, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed or considered, to be a better term, are considered as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand, stop his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? None. None. Can stop him. As I studied God's actions recorded in His Word, I found that God can still be absolutely sovereign while allowing individual human beings the freedom of choice. You see, God can be absolutely sovereign because He chooses to allow human beings a freedom of choice. Now, this may be a new idea to many of you especially to Calvinists, for it strikes ver- at the very heart or concept of irresistible grace. Actually, allowing free will in humans does not necessarily detract from God's sovereignty in any way, nor does it diminish the meaning of sovereignty, as Calvinists would claim it does. As sovereign, God may do whatever he chooses to do as long as what he does conforms to his holy and perfect nature. You see that? He's only constrained by having to act within his holy nature and his perfect nature. We must remember clearly that the only constraint God has is that created by his own attributes, by his own being, because there's nothing outside of God that could control him. He is totally free to do as he pleases within his nature. Furthermore, the free power of choice or volition is an essential aspect of being sovereign, an absolutely sovereign case. Now, when God chose to create human beings, he decided to grant human beings this same power of choice. He's granting to them the power of choice that's really exciting because that choice becomes being a part of man's being as being created in God's own nature. In Genesis chapter 1, please turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We'll start there. <coughs> Genesis chapter 1. In verses 26 and 27. Here's what we read. You'll know the context, of course, is in the garden. It's the sixth day. God says, verse 26, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea Over the fowls of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, creating him, male and female, he created them. You see that? God created man in his image. Notice the word dominion, that's a limited sovereignty, so to speak, of man over the earth and the beings of the earth. And God allows created man the freedom to make choices now in that governing of the earth. That freedom gives them the freedom to make choices, and along with that comes, though, an accountability of those choices. They are accountable for how they decide things, and God allows them that. Uniquely, God creates free and willing humans in order to have fellowship with them and to not have a bunch of robots running around. He didn't create pre-programmed robots forced to accept him, forced to worship him, forced to do everything he says. If you think about this, so often in other religions, just think of some other religions, their gods, and that's the term I'm using, their gods force people to accept their go- them and to do their bidding. Throughout history, in the various stories of ancient civilization, we see this concept that their god's forcing them, but not the god of the Bible. Those false gods never demonstrated true love for those individuals that they dealt with. But the God of the Bible offers salvation in love and how does he offer it? As a free gift, a gift that may be either received or rejected by individuals who exercise their God-given free choice and will. Granting human beings the freedom to choose is fully compatible With God's nature. If you think about it, it's fully compatible with God's nature in terms of His grace, His mercy, even His justice, and His love. Instead of diminishing His sovereignty, God's decision to grant human beings the freedom of choice actually demonstrates His sovereign freedom and glorifies Him more, for it allows Him to exercise. All of these attributes, especially from my viewpoint, his grace and his love. Perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's infinite love and grace and mercy is seen and demonstrated in the history of Israel and the choices God gave to that nation. Thus, Israel, in a sense, is a magnified picture of humanity in general. Rather than controlling every action of the nation, God allows the people of Israel and the nation as a whole to make decisions. Decisions that they carry with them, along with those decisions, consequences of either good or bad. Sadly, Israel often exemplifies rebellion aimed at her God, her very creator. Now, just remember back. Israel agreed to abide by the covenant that she made with God at Mount Sinai. That covenant had blessings for walking with her God and chastisement when she turned away from God. Many times in its history, Israel stubbornly went ahead and turned from God. It was within God's response to their rebellion that we see God's love demonstrated in a way that reflects a patient God who never forces those under his sovereignty to conform to his will. A good example of this is the time right after God redeemed Israel and set it free from Egyptian slavery. Now, as they set off to the Promised Land, God allowed them a freedom to demonstrate their response to his blessing. You're all familiar with the story of sending the 12 spies into the land of Canaan. You know the story. The spies went in the land. They came back. The 12 spies reported there are giants in the land. And they were all fearful. And the people listening responded and were fearful. They now had a choice. They could either enter the land as they were commanded by God to do, and let God deal with the the giants, or in direct disobedience to God, they could refuse to enter the land. We know the choice. They chose not to. Now, typically, we are taught that this disobedience resulted in God's condemning the nation of Israel to wander in the wilderness for what would eventually be a total of 40 years. Now, while this event was the event that triggered God's response, what is often ignored are the actual reason that God said that he sent them into the wandering period. You see, in Numbers chapter 14, God specifically says why they had to be wandering for 40 years. So turn over to Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, we're going to begin, uh, well, I'm going to look at verse 20 for context. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, this is right after what they had uh, refused to enter the land. Verse 21, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all those men who have seen my glory, my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted or tried me, now these, notice the next phrase, ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. Ten times. He didn't say, because of this event. He said ten times. Surely, verse 23, they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me See it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit within him, have followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. You see that? God says ten times, not just one event, ten times, and all those who refused would wander. But Caleb, who said they should go in the land, he was preserved. The reality is, as we read this, that our loving God demonstrated extreme patience and love for his Israel. Only after ten provocations did he initiate the wilderness wanderings. Now, what love and patience isn't that? Wow! God had great plans and purpose for his nation, yet he willingly permitted a delay of these 40 years before they went to the promised land. The delay was a result of their free choice, not his will. Here we have hardly a picture of a sovereign God who forced the people to obey him against their own will. I've done a study of the many times God withholds his just and proper reaction with individuals and nations when they make the wrong choice. In every case, he is always patient with them, He allows them time to repent of their decision, but he never overrode that decision they chose nor the immediate consequences of it. Think about the case of Jonah. He certainly, God certainly worked with Jonah to turn him back, but God still allowed Jonah the freedom to resist God's will. Yes, there was accountability for it, but Jonah had freedom to reject, resist God's will. Keep in mind that God had great purpose for his nation, yet he allowed delays in that task. What were those purposes? Well, Israel was to be the nation that was witness to the world about the true God, the God of the Bible. They were the nation that was going to write and produce and carry and protect and preserve the scriptures. And they were the nation to bring forth the Messiah. God patiently worked with them. Now, to be consistent with Calvinism, God should have forced them to do his will right from the beginning so that they could accomplish his plan for history. Or, alternatively, God could have rejected the nation and its people totally and chose to elect some other nation. Yet nowhere does the Bible, in the Bible, are we told that Israel was driven by irresistible grace. Rather, it says that he loves them with an everlasting love. That's Jeremiah 31.3. And importantly, he preserves them because of that love. There's a later occasion that again demonstrates God allowing Israel to make a choice that would again delay their progress in God's plan of history. In God's covenant with Israel, it was agreed that if they did not follow his laws and walk with him, He would drive them from the land of Israel until they repented and turned back to him. You can find a summary of this covenant in Leviticus chapter 26. In this chapter, we see that God sovereignly would see to it that after any period out of the land, he would bring them back and proceed with his plan and purpose for Israel. For he promised this. But within that plan and promise, He allowed them to make decisions that could delay God's plan. We read in Ezekiel 22, God tells us that their prophets, priests, princes, and people have all violated God's laws and now are deserving of being driven from the land. Yet for all this, God indicates they still had a choice. Turn, if you will, with me to Ezekiel. To Ezekiel. Ezekiel 22. Now remember, this is after they've been in the land. They have been walking away from God. All of them God lists in verses 26, the priests, 27, the princes, 29, the people. So we come to verse 30. In verse 30 we read, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, consequently, Therefore, have I poured out mine indignation upon them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Notice that God would have withheld his wrath and not driven them out of the land if he had found one person to stand up and pray for Israel. But in their own way, they chose to reject his warnings. Since no one person came to God to stand in the gap, God had to pour out his indignation. Interestingly, later in history we read of a man who did stand in the gap for the nation. Nehemiah implored God to restore Jerusalem to its greatness and Israel. As a result, Artaxerxes, driven by God's sovereignty, allowed Nehemiah to return to rebuild the walls. Now, in both these examples, God allowed men's action to determine the immediate outcome. Notice, though, in his sovereignty, God reestablished Jerusalem so that the Lord Jesus Christ could one day enter and offer the kingdom to Israel. This had to be, for through it, God's Son would offer a sacrifice for all men. The point I am making is that God's sovereignty would bring the ultimate result, but he willingly chose to let individuals make a choice, be responsible for their choice, even when that choice delayed God's plan and purpose. God's goal would be accomplished, but he works individually with people along the way by allowing them choices. Choices and responsibility are both gifts granted sovereignly by a gracious and loving God. Not only was God gracious to Israel in offering them choices, God also offers the most important choice a person can make. That most important choice the greatest choice is God's offer of eternal salvation. Both Calvinists and Biblicists acknowledge that a key element in the offer of salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, though, they are in total disagreement over what that work is. Calvinists believe that God must first predispose some to believe by forcing them to receive it by irresistible grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you will, the Holy Spirit is the enforcer. For the Calvinists, this demonstrates God's sovereign love of his elect. The Biblices sees the work of the Spirit in a totally different light. They see God's love, grace, and mercy through God's word, the Bible, and his allowing the Holy Spirit to present the free choice to the individual. There's no need of force to bring about the new birth, for the scriptures, the word, and the convicting of the heart by the Holy Spirit are sufficient. This is in marked contrast to Calvinism that portrays God as a deity who forcibly regenerates pre-chosen individuals. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit convicts the individual of his or her sins, convicts of the need of a Savior and of the truth of the Scriptures. At that point, God of the Bible, in graciousness, allows the individual to choose between either accepting God's gift or rejecting it. In grace, God offers it to all leaving each individual free to accept or reject his gift of salvation. To otherwise means that salvation is not a free gift. For a gift is by its nature free when it is offered and freely received and not something imposed upon a person. Furthermore, the very definition of God's grace is incompatible with the idea of irresistible will imposed upon the one receiving the grace. Interestingly, the word grace appears 170 times in 159 verses of the Bible. Yet irresistible never occurs in the Bible. Grace is always something freely given by God under no constraints to grant the grace, and it is always willingly can be always willingly received. Remember, Calvin needed irresistible grace because of his understanding of election and total depravity. In our second video, we clearly showed that biblical election applies to a group and only involves service to God. Biblical election isn't related to salvation in any way. Therefore, there is no need for the irresistible grace. You see, there is no need to force people to join the group and as a result, no need to compel people with irresistible grace. Based upon election, Calvin reasoned that if individuals could reject their personally decreed election by God, then God's sovereignty would be diminished, or worse, non-existent. In other words, according to a Calvinist, it would be a blatant failure on God's part if God did not succeed in saving those whom he had pre-chosen. What a misunderstanding of the God of the Bible and the concept of sovereignty. Calvinists also believe that if man has a choice, then in A.W. Pink's words, the Christian would have ground for boasting and self-glorying over his cooperation with the Spirit. New Calvinist D.A. Carson reinforces this, declaring, this is surely ground for boasting, he says. Again, we see an inconsistency. While salvation is a free gift, the Lord Jesus Christ did all the work in paying for our sins. It was only after the atonement and redemption that God could justly offer salvation to individuals. Rather than boasting, one who truly understands God's offer of salvation and how it was paid for, approaches the acceptance of the gift in humility and gratitude that Christ did it all. To believe that accepting a free gift from God is boasting hardly understands the position of the repentant sinner before a holy God. If this gift is available to all people, as we showed in our series on limited atonement, then to merely accept it offers no credit to the one receiving it. For they did nothing for it, Remember, it is a gift not of works, lest any man should boast. Often people ask me, do Calvinists find their beliefs in the scriptures? (laughs) To answer this, let us next look at the scriptural support offered by Calvinists for their position of irresistible grace. Calvinists frequently turn to the Gospel of John to support their position of irresistible grace, a grace that forces people to believe in Jesus Christ. Their prime support is found in John chapter 3 and verse 8. So let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is the familiar situation where Nicodemus came to the Lord to talk with him at night. And in verse 8 we read, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. In this familiar passage, Our Lord illustrates the spiritual birth by using the wind as an illustration. Both Calvinists and Biblicists believe that the work of the Spirit is essential. Uh, Look at verse 6 That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So, in other words, the work of the Spirit is essential in bringing about the new birth. Calvinists teach that the Spirit's offer of irresistible grace is based on God's election. The election, if you will, the irresistible grace is the wind that arbitrarily comes upon pre-selected individuals and regenerates them, independent of personal choice. They illustrate this with verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth." Okay? According to Biblicists, however, the Spirit's part is to confirm the truth of the gospel and convict individuals of their sin in need so that they will be brought to a place where they may choose to believe it or reject it. Now, let's turn over to John 16 and let's see how this gives us further understanding of John chapter 3. John 16, uh, verse 17. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, now that's the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, notice this carefully, he will what? Reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see no more of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and he shall show it unto you. You see, that's the Holy Spirit's task. It's a convicting of sin in the world, among other tasks that he's to do. Now we return to John chapter 3. In this chapter, we should note carefully that there's absolutely no verse in the passage that suggests the Lord is teaching Nicodemus about election and, of course, a consequent irresistible grace, or wind that's the irresistible grace. Instead, the context is really dealing with the water, and the Spirit. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, while some would say the water indicates baptism, the Bible clearly teaches that baptism always comes after salvation. It's not a prerequisite of salvation or means of salvation. However, water is often used in the Bible to represent the cleansing action of the word of God in salvation. John indicated this when he wrote back in chapter 15, verse 3, Now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The word has made them clean. Paul also described the cleansing action of the word of God when he said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, That he might sanctify and cleanse, and the context is, what is he sanctifying and cleansing? The church with the washing of water by the word. Now this supports the idea that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. For it is the word that first tells the sinner of his need, then cleanses him if he accepts God's salvation. Paul reiterates this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2, where he asks the Galatian believers, This only would I have learned of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Interestingly, here he is contrasting people who want to be saved by doing works with people who are saved by the hearing of faith. Notice, Paul links hearing with faith, just as the biblicist would say the scriptures work. Why did Paul write this letter to the Galatians? If salvation was by election, not by faith. See, there's no mention of election in this book. Instead, Paul uses this phrase, the hearing by faith, twice. He also then adds, the just shall live by faith. Since he is stressing that the Galatian believers began their walk with the Lord so well, that's how he begins, why no mention of either election or the Spirit forcing them to believe? Perhaps the way Paul should have written this phrase then, if he was a Calvinist, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by your irresistible grace? But he didn't, did he? By the hearing of faith. Returning, to John, the context of John 3 makes frequent reference to belief and never election. We see that he talks about belief in verse 12. And ye believe not. How shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Verse 16. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten uh, Son of God. You see, he was clearly saying to Nicodemus that for Nicodemus to believe the Lord's teaching here, he had to receive the witness of the word of the Lord. Let me explain that. Verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Nicodemus, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and received not our witness. In the case of Nicodemus, it was verbal witness by Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ. He didn't receive that at this point. We have God's word in our hands so we can receive the word now in faith. Taken in the simplest and most straightforward manner possible. Instead of representing irresistible grace. The wind in John 3.8 represents the unseen work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, this convicting work of the Spirit. Another passage commonly used by Calvinists is found in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, he says, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up again in the last day. Then he says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. That's John 6, verses 39 and 44. Biblicists understand the words where it says, all which he hath given me, represents the church as a collective group that God elected to prepare as a bride for his son before the foundation of the world. In other words, the Father has given the bride to the son as a group, not individually. Remember, biblically, the bride of Christ, or the church, is composed of all individuals who have freely chosen to be part of uh, Christ. And he promised to keep her secure until he raises her up as a glorious, spotless bride at the rapture, the end of the church age. All who will be part of the bride will have willingly responded to the gracious drawing of God through the proclamation of his word. Now, again, Calvinists say this drawing is the irresistible grace forcing. Instead, this is the drawing of God through the proclamation of his word his word that we're supposed to spread throughout the whole earth. For you see, sinners do not seek God apart from his word, as is confirmed by the Spirit in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Again, if we apply this verse 44 to the elect, contradicts other passages of Scripture. In other words, that God only draws the elect. For example, John 12, verse 32 declares... And I, if I'd be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. Now, Jesus Christ was lifted up from the earth. Certainly not all men have turned to Christ. But all men are given sufficient light by God so they can turn and be drawn toward him if they so desire and choose. Be sure to look at John 1, nine and Romans 1.19. The context of John 6 verse 44 gives no indication of an irresistible element being involved in salvation, but rather is an open invitations for individuals to believe that was expressed in verse 40. So let's, let's, let's go back here to John 6 verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who seeth the Son and believeth on him, now everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. New Calvinists take this verse and once again limit the everyone of John 6.40 to those elect by God. You see, John Piper would say, Since, and I'm quoting, since men are blinded to the worth of Christ, a miracle is needed in order for them to come to see and to believe. Those who are called have their eyes opened by the sovereign creative power of God so that they no longer see the cross as foolishness but as the power and the wisdom of God. The effectual call is the miracle of having our blindness removed This is irresistible grace. You see, the Calvinists believe that irresistible grace causes the spiritually blind of the elect to see or lose their spiritual blindness, for they then become unable to resist. This verse, however, cannot arbitrarily be limited to the elect, for it declares everyone that believeth on him may have everlasting life. Everyone. It doesn't say every one of the elect. Again, adding scripture is what they'd be doing. This offer was made to all who literally saw Christ that day, all those that were right in front of him. The offer is made those that saw him that day as well as to those whose spiritual eyes were willingly open to him in the future through God's word and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, once God's word was presented to them, they had a choice. It's then distributed through the word, through the scriptures throughout the world and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, not through an influence called irresistible grace, or as Piper calls it, a sovereign creative power of God. It is interesting to note that when Christ physically healed all who willingly came to him physically seeking healing, he was demonstrating his desire to spiritually heal all who willingly would come to him in the future. Furthermore, why would God admonish and warn unbelievers for being spiritually blind and deaf if it was not in their power to respond? That's the very way he ended John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, in verse 36, he says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not, that's a choice, believeth not the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abide." abideth upon him. How could he condemn them for not responding when it wasn't within their power? If anything, it's a form of mockery to them. How sad. Writing late in the first century, the Apostle John combined the idea of seeing and hearing with belief through the word. He did this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. And there John says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. By allowing individuals the freedom to choose or reject him, God brings those to him who freely want to please him. This idea certainly fits with the sovereign desire that seek to please himself as declared in Psalm 115, verse 3. Notice now this verse, Psalm 115, verse 3. Here we have God who is sovereign over all the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever. He hath what? Pleased. If it pleased him, he could do it. He's sovereign. Calvinism struggles with an idea that a sovereign God can allow puny humans to have a will and to act in ways that are in conflict with God's will. But the familiar verse from 2 Peter 3, verse 9 illustrates a frustration Calvinists have over God's will. This familiar verse is a problem for them. Peter says... The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that should all should come to repentance. How could the sovereign God desire men to be saved and yet arbitrarily condemn some to hell? Calvinists solved this dilemma by creating crediting God with a secret will or a second will. John Piper says, Therefore I affirm with John 3.16, 1 Timothy 2.4, that God loves the world with a deep compassion that desires the salvation of all men. Having said that, though, he then explains that, and I quote, God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to the glorification of his sovereign grace. End quote. It would seem that Calvinists are forced to conclude that God has two wills though they contradict each other, these are Calvinist words, are really in secret agreement, says the Calvinist. You see, God has a will to demonstrate his love and mercy by electing some, yet he has a will to condemn men independent of their own actions or will to his wrath. He then irresistibly forces the elect to accept him. When all things are considered, The Calvinist God seems to be far from the God of the Bible. Freedom of choice is truly to the praise of God, which could, as sovereign, make all men either saved or doomed. In love, all would be saved, but by the choice of the individual, some choose to reject God's gift. Do all men hear the gift? Well, Paul answers that certainly in Romans chapter 1. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 1 and see this for our own eyes and remind us something we need to remember and to lock in our minds when we think through this entire aspect of salvation and irresistible grace or grace. Okay, we read in verse 19. Well, let's go back to 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifested or shown to them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. See that? They are without excuse. No man can say, well, God, you didn't irresistibly put your grace on me, or you didn't force me. No, they are without excuse. Given a choice, there is an accountability for the choices made by men. Does God need the Holy Spirit to impose salvation upon the elect using irresistible grace and force? No. But God wants us to share the good news of salvation to all men so that they can make a free choice to either accept or reject his gift of salvation by grace. In doing this, we do cooperate with the Holy Spirit by saying the words of God and leave it up to the Spirit to convict the person of the truthfulness of God's word and the guilt of their sin. You see, I believe this is sufficient for this truly brings God the true glory. How do I know that it's the way it works and it's not irresistible grace? Because after hearing the word of God over a five-day period of time, I knew in my heart I needed the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I freely accepted his gift of salvation offered by what? A loving and gracious God. Based upon the scriptures and, and that God revealed in those scriptures, I concluded there is no such thing as irresistible grace. You see, I made a choice to receive Christ as my Savior. I know it was a choice. I know that both in myself, but more importantly, by the word of God. For once again, in the light of the Bible, another letter, the letter of I of irresistible grace, tumbles. Please join me again in my next program as we examine the P of Calvin's tulip, Perseverance of the Saints, and see how it too will tumble in the light of God's Word. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you either here or in the air.